Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for making us a family, a family of yours, a family of God. So Lord, as we, as we get together today and we worship you and we lift our voices to you, maybe we, may we be making a sweet sound and may our hearts be open to learn more about you. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're thankful to have Michael here today. He'll be bringing us our message. It's pretty exciting. Let's worship our Lord. Today we light the third Advent candle. Jesus is coming. Shout for joy. Joy is a word we see and hear everywhere at Christmas. Joy to the world is the message of the season. Joy is the theme of this day. Good morning. You know, as most of you were as kids, it was a really long time, especially if you had to wait till Christmas morning. Most people got Christmas Eve presents opening and whatnot. So um, the excitement was the replacement of the darkness with the light. And that's what our devotion is this morning. The night of the light. The night of, the, of light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. John 8, 12. In the month of the birthday of Jesus Christ, which will be celebrated all over the world, it will be celebrated in many ways, in many languages, by people of all races. In a few hours, many of the world will stop talking about the satellites, rockets, and war, and COVID. And for a few hours, many of the world will uh, be speaking of the peace on earth and the goodwill of men. People will exchange their gifts, and they'll talk about the Prince of Peace. Imagine this theme in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It was a night of nights, and it had begun as every other night. But it was be to become the greatest, most significant night in our history. It was the night when the light would conquer darkness and bring in the day when there would be no more night. It was a night that when those who lived in the darkness would see a great light. It was the night God brought into the world the one who is the light of the world. May Jesus' light shine in your life this Christmas season. And our hope for today, the birth of Christ was best announced at night. What better time to introduce the light of the world? Don't despair when your world goes, grows dark for it is the perfect time of the light of the world to shine.
Old Testament scripture today is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festivals, praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks, and the Lord has planted for his own glory. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people in their suffering and make the everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me with the robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom in his wedding suit or a bride with her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. Say the Lord's Prayer with us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their homes and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his children forever. We have a responsive reading. God of joy and exultation, you strengthen what is weak. You enrich the poor and give hope to those who live in fear. Look upon our needs this day. Make us grateful for the good news of salvation and keep us faithful in your service till the coming of the Lord Jesus, who lives forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this opportunity to listen to your word, to hear a fresh, new, and exciting version. And Lord, we know that the meaning is all the same, that you love us, you care for us, you want us to be your children, your obedient children. So Lord, as we, as we hear our message today and as we give our gifts, may we take, them all, take in the message and understand the joy that you have for us and the happiness and joy we should have by knowing that we are your children. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, so uh, I think probably my third or fourth time here, most of you know me. My name is Michael Petrolak. I've known Frank now for a couple of years. I teach Bible study. Um, uh, every week I teach for a group of anywhere between six to I think at one point we probably had 20 guys all together in my living room exceeding every chair that I had and sitting on the floor. Um, I also uh, I, I play guitar. I, I do worship uh, a couple of times a month at Christ Community. I'm used to teaching God's Word to people and I'm used to being on stage in front of a bunch of people. But guys, I'm so nervous <laughs> this morning. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm incredibly nervous right now. I was talking to my brother Will this morning, uh, and I expressed to him uh, my nervousness and said that normally when I get up in front of people, I have at least have a guitar to hide behind. That's, that's, that's my big boy's security blanket there. Uh, but I don't have that security blanket with me this morning. Um, but Will uh, reminded me that I have something much better than a guitar to stand behind this morning. So would you guys pray with me? Father God, I acknowledge you for who you are. You are God alone. You are the uncaused first cause. You are the creator of all things. You are the just and justifier of all of your creation. Thank you, God, for this day that you have given us. 
we will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you for this opportunity to come and be a part of this church this morning and to be able to proclaim the good news of your word. God, I admit to you right now that I am nervous. Um, so God, just I ask if it would glorify you to calm my nerves, to still my heart, to <laughs> dry my sweaty palms. Um, if it would glorify you to give me boldness and be able to proclaim your word with, uh, with confidence, then I ask for that. But God, if you would be more glorified in me being nervous, in me being, uh, <laughs> uh, in me being timid, in me being humble, then God, I ask for that and I thank you for it. God, I ask that throughout this message and afterwards that there would be nothing of myself that's memorable here. God, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase in this place. God, please, God, Father, Father, please bless the reading of your word today. Use your word to lift up the hearts and minds of your people. Lead us into a place of greater knowledge, greater understanding, greater love, and greater dependency, and greater hunger for your word today. God, thank you. I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so it was about a month ago that Frank reached out to me and offered me uh, an opportunity to come and preach today. And when he told me that the topic uh, was going to be on the deity of Christ, uh, very kind of apropos from what we were just singing, up there, do I need to start this presentation? There we go. All right. Uh, we were just up there singing about Hail uh, Deity Incarnate. And that's what we're going to speak about today. Uh, Frank asked me to think of a couple of Bible verses that might uh, be a good way to launch into this topic. And without hesitation, the first thought that came to my mind is this promise in Ezekiel 34. Um, so uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this promise, Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. And we are going to see how that is fulfilled through Christ through the, uh, in the Gospels. Um, we're going to go from that to what is this knowledge that we've learned about God, what, or what does this teach us, excuse me, about God, and then finally, what is this understanding that we have, what does this mean for us as modern day believers? Um, so if you want to hop over to Ezekiel 34, uh, we're going to start at verse 11, I'll give you a little background while you're moving over to it. Um, so Ezekiel, uh, his, uh, in Hebrew, uh, Hezkel is his name, it means God strengthens or May God strengthen. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet. He is writing and speaking to Israel early on in their captivity in Babylon. It's about a 20-year period, starting about five years into their exile and going to about 22 or 25 years in. Uh, the time period, it's about 600 years B.C. at this point. And the main theme of this book is that now for generations, Israel has turned away from God and from the moral law. Right now, they're under judgment. They are, they've been removed from their promised land, and they are now in exile in Babylon. Uh, and the main focus that Ezekiel has on this is for the restoration of God's glory and the hearts and mind of his people. Uh, so before we hop into it, verses 1 through 10, which we're, we're going to start on verse 11 today, 1 through 10 are a very sternly worded condemnation from God of the leaders of Israel. He refers to Israel as his sheep, a flock of sheep, and the leaders, the king and priests, as the shepherds of the sheep. And 1 through 10 are a strongly worded condemnation that they have not been leading well. They have, uh, they have allowed wolves to come on in and prey on the sheep. And even so far as the shepherds 
the kings and priests, have not cared for the sheep. They have fattened themselves, excuse me, at the expense of the sheep. So it is with that that God starts this promise for action on verse 11. If it moves to it. Could you please? I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, one more. All righty. So this starts here, uh, Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For, the, for thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on a rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now when I read this, what really jumps out to me, let's see if this works, if you could hit the next one here. What really jumps out to me is there are 14 times unique declarations of our Lord here where he takes personal responsibility and says that he will take personal action. I will, I will, I will. Now some of these promises are repeated. When I go through there, I read about nine unique promises that God makes. <clears throat> so what we're going to do today is we're going to start off by taking these nine promises. We're going to look at what God says during Ezekiel's time, and we will see how Jesus fulfills those in the Gospels, mostly in John 10, but we'll pull in a little bit of Luke and Matthew as well. But before we hop right into the, that understanding, hit the next one, please. There you go. Oh, back one. You anticipated me. Good job. Uh, there's a tool that I found very useful for understanding the relationship that the New Testament has with the Old Testament, especially when it comes uh, to understanding the nature and the characteristics of God. Um, this was written by a, uh, by a theologian, Benjamin Breckridge Warfield, in 1932. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished, but dimly lighted, the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there it almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but it is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. So with that, you guys ready to turn on the lights on Ezekiel 34? All right, let's do this. <clears throat> so, yep, number one up here, we have uh, God promises. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
He says, so I will seek out my sheep. I will seek the lost. These are all promises that he will personally go find uh, and, and seek his lost sheep. Jesus lays direct claim to this in Luke 19.10 when he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The second promise, God says, I will bring back the strayed. I will rescue them. Now, very much this has, in the Old Testament uh, context, this is speaking to an exiled people. So to people in Ezekiel's day, this very much meant coming back into their, uh, their promised land. But as we will see throughout this, when we look at how Jesus ta- uh, fulfills this, he, don't, he fulfills it to a greater extent, to an, ex- to an eternal extent. And we see Jesus here. Both of these are from John chapter 10. He says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says again, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The third one here. um, God promises, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. Again, a very rich Old Testament context for what has happened to this exiled people. But in Jesus, we see him say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also. So I ask you, are the details in this room starting to become clearer now? Are you able to start seeing that Jesus is not just a shepherd among many, but he is the good shepherd, the promised coming of God himself to lead his people? Okay, let's continue. The fourth promise. God says, I will bring them into their own land. Again, Babylon back into Jerusalem, which does happen under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, But the eternal fulfillment here in Christ, Christ says, and this is on the evening before he gives himself over to Roman custody. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this promise made to Israel of returning you to your land, Jesus takes us to the the eternal extent of I will take you to where I am for all eternity. Number five, we have I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Now this one looks pretty obvious off the top of the bat. You can take the feeding of the 5,000 from any of the gospel accounts here. But again, the external, or excuse me, the eternal fulfillment here. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Number six, God declares himself here. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And just to make it clear, in case there's any thoughts that maybe Jesus is just one shepherd among many, Jesus continues in the same chapter, John 10. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And he declares himself to be that shepherd. So again, I ask you, are you seeing this? Is this picture in Ezekiel becoming clear? Jesus is the promised shepherd of God. Number seven, I I myself will make them lie down, God says. And we see again the eternal fulfillment in Christ 
when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is out of Matthew's gospel. He promises, I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Matthew records, as Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And lastly, the ninth promise, a promise of, <clears throat> of holiness, of justification, or excuse me, of, of justice. Um, God says, the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Remember, verses 1 through 10, which we didn't go over today, is strong-handed condemnation from God of the shepherds, the kings and priests of Israel, for leading them astray and for fattening themselves at the expense of the sheep. And we see right here, where, where God takes personal umbrage with this. And Jesus in the eternal fulfillment says, and he, God the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So, ask you guys one more time. This is becoming clear. Are the lights that we've shown on Ezekiel 34, are you starting to see the fulfillment in Jesus here? Jesus is not just a mere man, the next in a long line of kings and priests. He is God himself, entering into his creation to right wrongs and reconcile himself with his people. Isn't that good news? <laughs> okay. So the next section, so what do we learn about God? What does this teach us here? Number one, we see, well, sorry, we see that God is active. We see that God is also compassionate. And we see that God is holy. So let's take a step into each one of these. God is active. Well, right off the bat, we saw 14 times in Ezekiel, from 11 through 16, that God promised to take personal action to right these wrongs. To give some extra context, God says in a couple of chapters, Ezekiel 36, <clears throat> Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord our God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. See, God is a God of action, and he is a God of action because he has skin in the game. His own name is, uh, is involved at this point. We also see this in Christ incarnate. Outside of the act of creating creation, there is no greater act in all history than the creator himself entering into his creation to redeem it. Um, and Jesus gives us some extra context here when he says in John 10, he is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the context we see here, Jesus gives us the why does he act. He's not a hired hand. He is the shepherd. These sheep belong to him, and he takes personal responsibility for their well-being. 
We also see how is he going to act. That he will give of himself for the good of the sheep, which is in stark contrast to the condemnation of the former shepherds of Israel who are fattening themselves at the sheep's expense. Jesus does the opposite, that he will give of himself for the good of his sheep. <clears throat> Next we see that God is compassionate. We see this in Matthew 9. It says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, said in a Christmas Eve service in 1914 entitled, the compassion of Jesus. He said, if you would sum up the whole character of Christ in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered in this one sentence. He was moved with compassion. Now, Charles Spurgeon was an incredibly spiritually gifted preacher, and I think he had very keen insight to this. If we take a look at the, uh, the Greek word that is used here for, uh, for compassion, it's a very interesting one. You see, Oenia Greek is a very, very descriptive language, especially compared to English. In English, oftentimes we have to use extra words. We have to use context in a sentence in order to convey meaning. Oftentimes in ancient Greek, they simply had another word that they could use. They didn't need to stitch multiple words together in order to convey their meaning. They could use a different word. Just as a couple of examples, and I'm just, disclosure, I'm not uh, a Greek language historian but I do geek out on this stuff, so I know enough just to get myself in trouble. Um, looking through, I found three different words for the word, word in Greek. You have logos, which we know this from John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. In the beginning was the logos. And it is a word that brings meaning, understanding, revelation, it's an idea. And we still have the word around today. It's where we get the, the term logic, and it's where we get the suffix ology, from, from biology to zoology, or doxology as well. There's also six different words for love, eros, philia, ludus, agape, pragma, philo, philosia. Um, it's a very, very descriptive language. So when we take a look at compassion, likewise with these, the authors of the New Testament, they had their share of words that they could have chose to describe Christ's compassion. In the Old Testament, in the, specifically in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was around and prevalent during Jesus' time, we had chamal, which is pity, and we have rachem, which is mercy. Now, the Septuagint at the time of the writing of the New Testament was about 250 years old, and as all living languages do, they tend to grow and change and evolve over time. So these two words had started to fall a little out of favor by the time the New Testament was being written. But other words took its place. We have aleio for mercy, okaterio for pity, metriopatheo to deal gently with, and we have sympatheo to show sympathy. But the authors didn't use any of these words. Charles Spurgeon continues in that Christmas Eve service. The original word for, uh, for compassion is a very remarkable one. It is not found in classic Greek. It's not found in the Septuagint. The fact is it was a word coined by the evangelists themselves. They did not find one word in the whole Greek language that suited their purpose, and therefore they had to make one. 
It is expressive of the deepest emotion, a striving of the bowels, a yearning of the utmost nature with pity. The term that they use is splachnizomai. We see it 13 times in the New Testament and only in relationship to Christ's compassion or when Christ is giving a parallel and he is describing compassion in that. This usage is still around in a common sense or in a common vernacular way. Now, when we describe something as gut-wrenching, when you see something that just hits you in your, to your stomach, to your core. So what we see here is not only is God compassionate, but the type of compassion witnessed in the living Christ was such that no previous usage of the word in all of scripture could adequately describe it. It's amazing. Number three, we see that God is holy. Ezekiel 3 points this out. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Our God is holy. His nature is such that sin cannot be tolerated. It cannot be in his presence. The same way when you're in a dark room and you turn on a light switch, the darkness doesn't fight against the light. Darkness cannot be in its presence. The same way with sin and God's holy nature. So these three things together, these three characteristics of God, they create a tension. On one hand, we have God's compassion. On the other hand, we have God's holiness, but he's also bound by action. There's a tension here. And there's a tension that, to give another example, just an illustration here, I see this often in, in my professional world. I, I work in supply chain for manufacturing and aerospace. Um, it's my job to get parts, services, uh, tooling, equipment, everything that you need to keep a manufacturing line running and on time and within budget. I'm responsible for bringing those in. And there's these three constraints that I, I run into all the time. High quality, a quick turnaround, quick delivery, and low cost. And this is a hard thing to balance. More often than not, one of these three things ends up suffering. I can bring in something that's high quality and I can get it here quickly, but it's not gonna be cheap. Likewise, I can bring in something, oh, you can go back one more. I can bring in something quick and I can get it cheap, but it's not going to be high quality. This is a difficult thing for me to reconcile. But the good thing, at least for me, is that because it's difficult, I'm able to make a living wage on it. It's valuable to people to be able to go and do this and do this well. Likewise, God runs into the same series of constraints, or a similar series of constraints, bound by his own nature. And there is value in these and how he resolves them. So, how does God resolve these three? There's a, uh, there's a street preacher that I absolutely love. His name's uh, Ray Comfort. He's Australian. He does a lot of uh, preaching now in Southern California. Love this guy. He's awesome. Um, he often describes uh, an earthly courtroom. Now, uh, imagine, uh, you know, someone walks in in front of the judge, and the judge says, look, there's a stack of speeding tickets, and you guys have been in Arizona for a while. Remember the red light cameras? We've got your license plate. We've got your photo. There's no way out of this. You are guilty of these. But as the judge looks through his record, he says, well, but 
your fine's been paid. At that point, he's guilty, but his fine has been paid. The judge can now legally dismiss his case, let him go. So, in a similar way, that is how God reconciled this problem here. You see, 2,000 years ago, God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, the life that we are called to live. See, God's moral standard is moral perfection every second of your life from birth all the way through to death. And as, as humans, none of us can accomplish that. It took God coming in the form of man to be able to achieve that. He lived a perfect and a sinless life. And he took our place. You see, we broke the moral law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. He paid our fine with his life and his death. The very last word uh, recorded by Jesus on the cross in John 19, the Greek word, tetalestai. It is finished, paid in full. The good news is the story doesn't end in the grave. As if that wasn't good news enough, the story continues, the story doesn't end in the grave. Because Jesus rose in accordance with Scripture on the third day. And right now, he is seated at the highest place of authority at the right hand of the Father. And he continues to pray for us and intercede for us. And there's a beautiful thing here. It's got a really lofty title to it of double imputation. And what it means is imputation, there, there's a trade-off, a sharing. So we see in his death on the cross, he took our place. Our sin was imputed upon Christ. But the story doesn't end there. His righteousness that he earned is imputed upon us. So when we go in and when we meet the Father, we're not just slates wiped clean. We actually go and we can stand before him with the righteousness of Jesus, a righteousness that Paul said makes us co-heirs of heaven with Christ. I read that, and it doesn't matter how many times I read it, I, I can't fathom it, I can't understand it. This is how God resolves that tension. The Apostle Paul states this beautifully when he talks about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation, fully satisfying and fully draining God's holy hostility towards our sin, so that he may be the just, he may be just and the justifier at the same time. Isn't that amazing? Our God is good. Our God is so good. So, what does all of this mean for us? Well, number one, we can have true hope. You see, God didn't send a mere man in the form of a king or a priest to lead us. He promised that he himself would come, and he did. Jesus is God. And God, as the predecessor of all created things, He's the bedrock of truth. There is nothing more true in all of existence and could never be more true than God. So if Christ is God, excuse me, since Christ is God and God is truth, we can have trust in what Jesus says. And Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is a hope 
This is true hope. This isn't the type of hope when you're going to go plan a, a vacation for your family. It's going to be in an outdoor event a month from now. And you hope it doesn't rain. <laughs> you hope it's not 118 degrees when you're out there. You hope the weather is good, but you don't really know. This is the type of hope where you have an ailment and you go to a doctor and the doctor runs tests and he comes to you and he says, look, I can see it in your blood work. I can see it in the imagery. I know what this is and I know how to get rid of it. I've done the surgery 500 times. You're going to be okay. That is the type of hope that we have. It's not the hope that in the future the weather will be good, but it is the hope based upon the authority, the knowledge, and the sovereign nature of our God. And with that true hope, we can have true joy. I love how uh, Peter says this. He says that he, Christ, has caused us to be born again into a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In this, you rejoice. So for us as modern believers, we have true hope because the God of all creation has come in, entered into our predicament, and taken care of us and given us eternal life and eternal purpose in his presence. And from that, we can have true joy. And in closing, with true hope and true joy and with the living example of true compassion, we can do what God promised to do in Ezekiel and then Jesus repeatedly asked Peter to do um, shortly after his resurrection, feed my sheep. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, again, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the glory that is your character. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the world is filled with your glory. I thank you for this body and for this time that we have together. Thank you, God, for your word. Your word is true. Your word is life. Your word is uplifting. God, thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and sustain us. Thank you for this day of life. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us so we can come together as a redeemed body. We can glorify you. Thank you. Please bless this church. Increase our hunger for you, God. We love you. Keep us safe this week. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You guys, lastly, in a, have a closing benediction for you real quick before we get into one last song. This is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.
Father, let us take these words. Let us understand how you were telling the Israelites what will happen in the future, that he still loved them, and that he would bring them still to their promised land or back to their promised land, and, how, and that his son would be coming, and that how that would end up changing the lives of all who ever lived. Lord, as he came, he taught, and he finally died for our sins and gave us the opportunity to come and worship you and know that you would forgive us. This, Lord, we thank you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 